This is Collected Clan, Episode 1. It's the weed out for me, where I know the things that I don't want are more important than the things that I do. Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast about outstanding people I've met along the way. People with interesting stories, triumphs, ideals. People who've made their mark in the world and in my life. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. I've met a lot of people over the years and many people come and go. Shakespeare wrote, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. But these people are the company that you keep. Everyday people, just like you and me. I am talking with Amber... Williams. Amber and I have known each other for, oh, good Lord, what, 10, 11, 12 years? Yeah, I was going to say, it's at least 10. <laughs> at least 10, because I think it was 07 or 06, um, that first time we shot together mm-hmm. up in that awesome studio that I miss dearly. I moved here to Nashville in 2006 to go to a school at Vanderbilt. That's actually what brought me to Nashville. And one of the most interesting things about that is that I had no interest in fashion whatsoever, really, when I came into Nashville, but um, I was getting a clinical laboratory science degree. And while I was in school, my interest switched a little bit where I was just mostly wanting to get to know some people in town because I was new to the area. I didn't really know anybody. My class was five people. And we were with each other five days out of the week, eight hours a day, and it just made it where it was really hard to kind of get to know new people. So I I got an invite to, I guess, audition, if you will, for a runway show that was being held to uh, benefit the American Cancer Society. And when we, uh, I got into that mostly just to sort of kind of, like I said, get to know some new people, um, kind of just uh, get myself out of my very introverted shell. Since I came from a very small town, um, I just sort of grew up very introverted, very shy, very quiet for the most part, and wanted to challenge myself one more step to sort of get myself out of that little bit of a personality trait. So I got into this audition, and I, of course, was booked for it, and it was a fun show. I got to know a bunch of people in the fashion industry. It was the very kind of the almost the beginning stages of Nashville was getting started, having runway shows. They were doing little pop-ups at that time. And mostly what got me into the fashion industry was one, I was at that event and I actually walked in the shows, but what really kept me in the industry was actually the photographers. So I had a few photographers come up to me after that show and were were wanting me to actually try to do photography, like actually sit in for some photo shoots. And so I was like, all right, you know, like it's one more thing for me to just sort of see how I do because it wasn't really something I had interest in doing. It just didn't fit my personality, if you will. (laughs) So I just ended up um, doing a couple of shoots, and then after that, it just grew from there. That's crazy, because you have clearly met that challenge, because when I think (laughs) of Amber Williams, I do not think introvert. I mean, I know you're a small-town girl, farm girl, uh, or countryside girl. Were you raised on a farm? Like an actual uh, farm, farm, like with animals? Yeah, we had a farm. We would uh, raise a garden every year. Um, I know how to put up tomatoes, put up corn, you name it. Um, I played in cotton trailers. My grandfather had land that they grew cotton on. 
my parents uh, were not farmers per se, but we had um, cattle. That was about as as close to farming as I got, you know, ah, being okay. a country girl. But yeah. we had a 15 acre yard, uh, 15 acre farm that we, you know, had our own garden and lived off of that for the most part for my whole life. So I was organic before organic was cool. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> we grew our own food, so I guess that's kind of a nice little start. That's awesome, man. 15 acres of Middle Tennessee, oh, man. What I would I'd give for three acres of Middle Tennessee right now. <laughs> so you challenged yourself to get out of your introverted shell. Uh, clearly that worked. Who were some of those photographers that you worked with back then? Uh, it was definitely you. And then, oh my goodness, I'm blanking off. You had to put me in on that question. Oh, uh, let me see. Who was it? Um, Shannon Fontaine was actually the first one uh, yeah. that we did a photo shoot there at his place. Uh, one of the one of the lofts. I don't know how we ended up coming across that location, but, uh, that was the first shoot ever. And then, um, then your shoot, then I see I've worked with so many people. <laughs> Michael Howard was one of the first ones that was in sort of the beginning stages when he was shooting film. Um, gosh, it's been so long. Um, those were like in 2008, if I remember correctly. Um, gosh, I need to write them all down. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a few photographers in Nashville. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's there's, there's guitarists <laughs> and photographers. So out of those runway experiences, that's where you really fell into the fashion scene? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it really, it, it just went from um, getting to know more models, finding out what models were actually doing in town. It was very word of mouth, word of, you know, just sort of my photos would end up on Facebook and then people would see them, then another gig would follow. It just is sort of the domino effect as in um, how it kind of usually works for a lot of things. Musicians are this kind of a similar parallel. You just get your work out, and people start to see what you're doing and what you're capable, and then they just sort of call on you. <laughs> right. Uh, but mostly it was I did freelance for the most part. Um, I had some few little contracts out just to take care of the bigger gigs, but um, – I did like walk for the symphony runway show a couple of times. Marquesa, Mar uh, Monique Lelouier, uh gosh, those were great. Um, but those were my 800 people watching, and I got a little too nervous. I was like, okay, this is fun, but I don't really know if I want to do it much longer. Right. Those symphony <laughs> and, shows, yeah. uh, did you walk in the Oscar de la Renta show? Oscar actually is one of the ones I did go to the audition and they were really sweet, but Oscar would not see you unless you were at least five, nine or taller. Right. So I snuck in on the, on the other ones, but, um, but cause of my walk, but yeah. and I'm a little bit on the shorter side. So. Yeah. And I've, I've struggled with that. Um, I, I, I don't want to say body type, but those physical requirements, um, or wish list if we, I've struggled with that philosophically for the longest time and I kind of get it now um, they still bugs me but um, having photographed um, models and and non models just you know everyday girls of all heights I almost hate to say this but I, there there is there's a visual difference it's just a proportions thing um, yes yeah and that's just frustrating as all get out especially um, now that I've got two daughters of my own uh, I didn't think about it even once 
um, back before my daughters were born. But once I became a father of daughters, everything in that realm just really made me gave me pause. But I kind of get it. Um, I mean, runners have a physique. Football players have a physique. Tennis players have a physique. Um, I don't know. I guess it's just a thing, you know. And there, there are people who defy those uh, traditions and customs and uh, excel anyway. But I don't know. It just always really bugged me. Mostly, I believe it was just because certain yards of fabric would cost so much money to make that they wanted to use as little fabric as possible, so they got small, skinny people. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's mostly what really what started it is that you'd have this thousand dollar a yard garment. And you want to use as little as possible because you don't know if your buyers are going to buy it or not. And you want to make that one piece, you know, save your money where you can, but still present a wonderful product for someone to, you know, really judge what they're buying. So they literally had, you know, skinnier people require less fabric. So that was mostly, I think, their mentality. And then, of course, the longevity of like, uh, I don't know, they're they change out the ages and everything. Of course, you've got France and all of that. They've started to do their weight requirements, BMI requirements. It's, it's been neat to see the, the shift of that requirement or what is sort of expected and um, what is seen as okay and normal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely changing. That whole world is most certainly changing. Um, it's nice to see the diversity is, you know, definitely improving as well. I agree. Um, it was very straight-laced, like one set cookie cutter for a long time, and I'm, I'm glad it's switching up a little bit. Well, what are you doing in the fashion world these days? Well, I started, of course, in front of the camera and then uh, sort of lost not necessarily a love of that. I have a shoot tomorrow, for example, but um, I, I wanted more to offer than just one thing, I mm-hmm. suppose. I have one thing to offer. I have one look to give to whoever wants to book me for whatever or whatever project. And so I, I just look at it, looked at it as I wanted to keep my options open. I'm also getting older, and I, I basically wanted to still stay in the industry, but I knew hair and makeup were not my fortes at all, and I just kind of well, thought on it for a hot minute, <laughs> and I realized that I, uh, I was always bringing my clothing to shoots, of course. They kind of, when you do these shoots and whatnot, they like want you to bring your own to have backups, most stylists do at least. So a transition basically happened where I was like, well, why don't I just try wardrobe styling for a little while? So I called on all of those photographers that I knew, and I basically was like, hey, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so now I'm actually um, more behind the camera than I am in front. So I do wardrobe styling now. And for about two years there, I was styling for um, I was styling models for Amax and iModel Management, uh, basically just doing their development books where uh, it was very minimalistic styling, uh, just trying to mostly present the model of what the model can do uh, for their books and portfolios. So we kept it pretty basic. And somewhere along the way, it finally dawned on me how much of a music lover that I am. So I have now switched to focusing mostly on musicians. So I'm wanting and styling musicians these days. And there are a few musicians in this town. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> so if you're going to focus on that, this is a great place to do that. Yeah, it's been interesting for sure. Have, what um, musician shoots have you styled that have become like album packages? Are there any that uh, we would know? Uh, April Cry has done one. And then uh, Selena, we just did hers here recently. Um, but they're... Uh, 
Mostly it was like I did a video, sort of a more of a word of edit for the band Red. It's an alternative Christian band. Um, we did that, like one of the first things I sort of did, uh, brought that in. But I really kind of just kind of gotten started, if you will. Um, still no big names yet, you know how it can be. Yeah. But I haven't got that far yet. Yep. Is that something still on the front burner or is it side burner? It actually, it comes and goes, um, which is kind of random. Um, I still love my day job. I, uh, 100%. And I think if I had a little bit more of an apprehension to go to that every day, it would probably be more of a push for me to stay in the wardrobe industry, but, uh, I'm wardrobe and music industry, but I honestly, I love what I do for a living. So I, Get, I dip into it back and forth. I have love-hate relationships slightly with it because it isn't easy. It really is not an easy thing. Um, wardrobe styling requires a lot of load-in, load-out, you know, pre-planning, you know, returning or shipping. It's it's a lot of risk involved, financial risk. You know, you're you're taking a thousand-dollar garment and putting it on somebody, and then you're kind of turning it loose and hoping nothing happens to it. So uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's got a lot of risks, and it's got a lot of, um, a lot of energy is required. And when I do a 40-plus-hour work week, I fit it in where I can, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but, yeah, that's I, I do the full-time job. But I have, like I said, a love-hate relationship with the styling, just mostly because it is a difficult industry, uh, one, slightly to get into, and then second of all, um, just to do in general. Um, it's, it takes a lot of, lot of effort. I've always been intrigued by what you're calling your day job. Um, I know the scientist side of you. Well, let me, let me back up. I know that the scientist side of you exists, but I don't know the scientist side of you. So probably explain like, a yeah, more like, of what. <laughs> what, what, exa- yeah. what exactly do you do? So um, I for for six years I did stem cell I did bone marrow and stem cell transplants at Vanderbilt. So I went in as a trained generalist. That's what I trained when I was at Vanderbilt. I could work in any lab that you can think of. And when I trained and did that, I specialized in the stem cell transplants. So I was seeing cancer patients. Um, I was doing their bone marrow transplants. We were doing their cord blood transplants. Um, and that was like one world that I lived in for about six years. And then now I've switched to what we would consider more the front side of the cancer fight while the stem cell transplants were the back side. We came in at the last minute when nothing else was working. We were the ones that came in to just sort of see if we can make it happen. We usually, we could give about five to eight years on a person's life with the stem cell transplants, but now I'm on the front side of the cancer fight, which is more um, seeing if chemo is working. We're helping diagnose cancers. We're helping figuring out what exact cancers people have. Um, right now I'm in the electrophoresis and hemoglobinopathy testing. So that is going to be your blood disorders like sickle cell disease, thalassemias, alpha thalassemias, um, C disease, which is um, another hemoglobin variant where your red cells just aren't doing the right, not making the right type of hemoglobin. Um, and of course, hemoglobin is actually what transports your oxygen and iron and whatnot around your body. And if that's messed up, then you're not getting proper oxygen. So it's an interesting little flip flop, I guess, from Vanderbilt to, to where I am now. But, um, but so I do, uh, basically, I'll run some like lab tests. Like I literally am pipetting, I'm centrifuging, using test tubes, you know, 
if you ever had blood testing done at all in any capacity, we're the ones that test it. That's what a clinical laboratory scientist will do. And how did you get to that field from 15 acres in Middle Tennessee? Uh, well, it was a What's little the bit of a, a challenge. Uh, I say challenges, and I, when I was a senior in high school, I had no other idea of what I wanted to do other than I knew I wanted something science, and I knew I wanted something medical. So I didn't want to go to med school. I knew I, I kind of did more of a weed out, I suppose, in figuring out what I wanted because I knew what I didn't want mattered more than what I did. So for me, I was like, I'm definitely not going to go to med school, but let's just go ahead and keep it general. I, I even thought of the idea of being sort of a Jack Hanna version, female version of Jack Hanna and doing like the safari videos. And But my personality, again, was still very introverted. So I never wanted to get in front of the camera because it scared me. Now See, I would but, probably but, love doing but that. But Jane <laughs> Hanna, you as Jane Hanna, I, I could, that makes sense. <laughs> But yeah, so um, basically I ended up deciding to do a biology degree to keep myself with my options open. For some reason, I like to have my options open. So I did a general biology degree at UT Chattanooga. And while I was there, my there was one man that was very influential to a lot of things for me. He was three different things. He was my boss at one point because I worked in the micro prep lab. And then he was my advisor. And then he was also my teacher. He was my professor. So he was sort of very, very much involved in my life in those two years that I finished up my degree at, I'm sorry, at UT Chat. And he was interested because he was like, you know, you're really enjoying working in the micro prep, you know, micro prep lab. Why don't you go and see, uh, why don't you go and shadow these people at the hospital? And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. And I knew I needed to specialize in something. That's welcome to the medical field. We have to have a license, of course, to do whatever it is that we do. But uh, so he, he basically put me in touch with um, one of the hospitals in Chattanooga, and I went and I shadowed some of the MTs. They were called MTs back then. They're now CLS now. But I uh, went to shadow them, and I actually hated it. They were in the dungeon basement. They were in the, like an old lab. And I'm like, this is not for me. Like I feel like <laughs> this is very closed off. I just didn't even like it at all. But what ended up happening was I went home for Christmas break, and I also knew that these this field, this clinical laboratory science field, they worked in clinics as well. So, like, you could pretty much work wherever you wanted as long as there's lab testing. And so I ended up calling one of the clinics in town, and I basically said, hey, can I come and see what you do every day just to kind of get another, you know, different perspective of the same field. And I went and I shadowed, and I absolutely loved it. Completely different environment completely different setting. Um, There's just something about it that just sort of spoke to me, I suppose, about being able to do the field because it's a slightly intimidating field. You're going to have to learn a lot of things. You're basically going to the first two years of med school with no medical degree uh, to show for it. Uh, and you have, you know, you have to get into the program. You have to actually interview to get into the program. So it was very intimidating to choose that field, uh, for me at least. Uh, but we ended up, um, that advisor was really the one that kind of pushed me in that little direction because he was observant enough to see what it was that I liked. And he knew that I loved the immunology. He knew that I liked the microbiology. He knew that I liked doing the lab work itself and that I took genetics lab just because I wanted to, not because I had to take the lab. So he was very observant 
And I, I hope everyone has one of those people in their lives that just pays attention because that was really beneficial for me to kind of help guide me through the rest of my career even. Um, but he, had he not recommended me go shadow, I probably would have, I probably never would have done it or even known the field existed, to be honest with you. I would have never noticed. <laughs> like, no, every time I tell somebody what I do, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Then you explain it. They know exactly what you do. But um, it was an interesting route to get me there. But that's basically how I ended up here. So you did undergrad at UT Chattanooga mm -hmm. and graduate work at Vanderbilt? Or did you? Uh, well, it, it's actually just, it's, yeah, it's, it's actually uh, a second bachelor's from Vanderbilt. Oh, second bachelor's. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it ends up being two different ones. But they all sort of lead to the same place, I sure. suppose. <laughs> sure. So when you, for the first six years, you were with uh, one group of scientists, and then you changed directions to the front side of yes. treatment? Yes, Was it the yeah. same group? Like, did the group itself change directions, or did you change to a different group that had a different focus? I just completely changed jobs. Ah, okay. I went completely changed jobs, yeah. I left Vanderbilt completely. Wow, so what's the, um, the day in, day out for you? But what are some, like, massive breakthroughs that you've not necessarily discovered, but because of your work, so-and-so is still alive? I mean, is it is it that kind of impact? It was when I was at Vanderbilt. Um, okay. Now, so much it's more of a, a therapeutic sort of monitoring type of testing that I'm doing. When I was at Vanderbilt, either the stem cell transplant worked or you died. To be honest with you. Wow. Um, we we basically napalm their their bone marrow, and they had no immune system when we went when they went through that chemo. So when we gave them back their cells, they either took or they didn't. So that was a little bit more, no more, uh, more intense. Yeah, no pressure at all, right? Yeah, yeah don't infect anybody with anything crazy. Uh, it was, it was pretty intense. But I, I don't know. I, I found while I was in school that uh, the blood bank was one of my favorite classes, um, which is, you know, very, very intense choice out of our field. I enjoyed the intense, the stress, the, the requirement, the, um, oh gosh. Uh, high energy. Uh, those were the things that I, I realized that I really enjoyed while I was going through the program at Vanderbilt. And then I, the, the stem cell thing just sort of fell in my lap because the boss that I ended up having, she invited me to uh, come for an interview. Uh, and she sent all of us in my class a very intimidating email of basically, hey, if you do mess up, you're going to kill somebody. So that, that kind of sent some people not wanting to go to the interview. <laughs> Uh, for sure. I mean, it was, it's pretty, it was pretty involved. Um, but I ended up specializing in that. But when I do now, it's more monitor based. It's, it's, uh, we're trying to make sure that the chemo is working. It's, it's, and even then I don't have anything to do with that. It's more of the pathologists that are going to do the more interpretation side of that. I'm just cranking out the volume actually for them to look at. So it's a little more factory based now, if you will, lab-wise, where I'm at now, but I don't mind it. More room for error or less There's more, uh, less drama if there is error? Um, is that accurate? It's, it's still, uh, now there's more volume. Um, it used to be that you would work on one patient for four hours at Vanderbilt. Now I work on probably 100 different samples at a minimum throughout the day. So there's more chances for error for sure. Um 
for more than one person. So like before it would have been just messing up for one or five people. Now it's messing up for a hundred. <laughs> so you have to be very, you know, very good about watching your numbers, watching your names, watching your volumes and dilutions. And it's, uh, it's more hand, it's still hands-on, which I enjoy. It's not just putting a sample on a machine and walking away. Um, what my bench is very specific about doing exactly what we do, which is, um, we have to actually manipulate the sample, which is more risk. Um, you can always get, you know, mix people up or it's just, you have to stay under, there's no autopilot is the way I like to describe it. <laughs> the I mean, healthcare obviously has been in the news for the last, oh my gosh, what seems like forever. Um, so mm -hmm. with all of the changes and additions and takeaways and changes, and then we'll give you this and you can't have that and all that stuff. How, how does that impact what you and your company does or does it? Uh, it's more of how uh, much a patient probably pays for their lab testing that's going to affect it. It's more insurance-based for us, where okay. if insurance is not going to pay out more, it's now going to fall on the patient. So it's it's all lab testing, basically, like I said, from going to have a CBC blood work, any blood work done, any you know, micro testing done, anything like that immunology where we find out if you have malaria or anything crazy. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very dependent upon what's going on with the insurance companies. What are the insurance companies able to give out? Because we don't really necessarily increase our prices. If that makes sense, we have this kit that costs X amount of dollars. We have to make a little bit of profit. You know what I mean? Like it's more, it's more based off of as long as our our stuff is being paid for because these kits, that's where lab testing is so expensive. You have, you know, multiple degree people doing the testing in the first place. They have to be paid. Then you have the, uh, the lab kits itself, the equipment, gosh, some of our equipments are in the, you know, hundred thousand dollars for one analyzer. Like it's ridiculous how much this equipment costs. Um, and of course, all through, you know, regulations and then solutions and everything we and shipping costs because we get reagents sent to us by mail. It's a lot of money that goes into lab testing. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know all of that extra stuff. So they're like, why is my lab bill so expensive? But there there's a lot of things it's paying for um, that are kind of factored into not only just the test, but the actual knowledge that went into reading the test, because we all, like I said, we go to two years of um, med school for the most part to do what we do. It's expensive all around, but we're best, mostly it's just how it translates to the patient is how the insurance is going to pay. So the wherever the political football lands, your, your livelihood and your work is not necessarily affected one way or another. For me personally, well, right. raises maybe, but aside from okay. that, no, it's more we're kind of at the mercy of what goes on above us at this point, you know, like if they want to do, um, you know, raises or not, it's, it's more a company based, not necessarily government based, if that makes sense. Yeah. As, as I say that as if anything government related makes sense, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely affects us. So we're, it, it affects everybody, but, um, not technically directly. Does that make sense? Well, that, that's fascinating. I don't know why this is not something you and I have talked about before. Um, I knew there was some level of scientist to you and about you, uh, largely from a blog you had or still have 
the DNA stylix. That's how I knew that you were more than just uh, <laughs> an external aesthetics interested in fashion. Um, yeah, when that's I saw what you got me into Fashion Week, on, actually. Like the, like the scientific <laughs> connection to fashion. I was like, well, now, okay, now this is interesting. Just because it, it was a new perspective, it was a new level. Are you still doing DNA stylix? Uh, I still have it, um, I guess, in a nutshell, real brief synopsis of it. It's a play off the word DNA helix. So it's like decoding the DNA of fashion instead of DNA in general, gen genetic genome, all that. Gotcha. Uh, so I just kind of made up this little word, DNA stylix, off of that. Uh, it started basically because uh, randomly um, I had a detached retina. <laughs> Random, but um, I had... I had a detached retina, and for a month, I had very, very, very horrible vision. I couldn't wear contacts. I didn't work for a month. Uh, I couldn't see for seven days <laughs> after the surgery. Um, so I needed something to do that I could kind of get my mind. When you have nothing to visually focus on, it's amazing how much your brain will just go crazy. So I, I needed something to do during that little time period. And so I kind of came up with this little idea. I was like, well, why don't I merge my two loves and put them together? And that's where the blog came from. And what really also kind of stemmed it, that whole, um, me actually creating the blog and actually going through the process of building the website and all of that was that I had plans to go to fashion week in New York and at that time, you know, blogging was really getting going, and it was, it's like, I think this was in 2013, I want to say. It was when it was really getting started, and it was, you know, bloggers were getting into shows to see the designs and everything, and I was like, well, I'm going to go to New York. I want to go see these shows. One, I have an appreciation for fashion, but they're not going to let me in just because I want to see the pretty clothes, you know, like I need a reason. Um, I'm not a buyer. I'm not, you know, I don't own a boutique or anything. Like, there's no reason they would let me in. So I was like, well, let me just create something that will give them a reason to let me in. So I created the website, created a blog because, of course, a lot of bloggers were getting into shows. And I wrote on that for about, I think, six months. And then I just sent the website on to them when I sent out for it to, to see if I could request for some invites into the runway shows. And I was actually really surprised at the response that I had because the designers that invited me to their shows were very science-based. So it's it's not only it, – it's, it's every area of science that you can think of. So it's technology. It's, you know, astronomy. Like anything science because that's just kind of what my brain naturally, dra like, draws itself towards. So for me, I would see a design go down the runway. So this is the concept of the blog. It's more a comparative blog where I would see a design and then I would personally see something different. Aside from just, say, the color green, it would be similar in pattern to, like, say, a malachite stone. So I would see that, and that was actually on one of Monique's uh, runway shows, was that stone was her inspiration. And so that stone's pattern was put into her fabric. And... Anyway, I ended up writing this blog, and I had maybe, you know, quite a few little articles on there, just basically taking the picture of the runway show, uh, runway shot, and then I compared it to what I thought it looked like, and then I would also include a little bit of scientific background about what it is that I was using to describe the uh, garment. And it ended up being that it was like three Oz four ended up inviting me to their show, and their show was all designs that were 3D printed or laser cut leather. 
that was sensational. <laughs> it's absolutely sensational to see that that go down the runway. Every single piece was just completely done by a computer. Or and then another guy, I ended up meet, sitting by the man that created the software, uh, the designs that they used to actually uh, print the uh, garments themselves. It was all this, you know, computer technology went into it. The laser printer went into it. It was incredible to watch it. Um, all of this t science and technology be used to create a garment. And so I started to see the patterns. So it was a number of shows that invited me to see their stuff, and they were very science-based. Either they were inspired by, I don't know, roots or something. Like they would end up getting me into the show because they had had a natural affinity for nature and brought it into their show. And they that's where the parallel ended up coming in for me. I think that's fantastic. And you're probably the only fashion blogger out there who could even make those connections. Yeah, I'm definitely a nerd. <laughs> 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 I, I, I definitely am a nerd. Um, I mean, we had radial Laurens in one, one of them that was kind of neat. Uh, there's like these protozoa in the ocean that most people are going to be like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, I just read a lot of science books growing up. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, they, they, they paid off. I will, I will use that when inspiring my kids to read. And unfortunately, I mean, Molly just devours books. <laughs> and, uh, and Margot is close to learning to read on her own, and, and she'll devour books as well. Um, and I, That's I will, awesome. I will use this as an example of, see, this is why you read. <laughs> this well, is where we're going to turn the television off, and we're going to blog. read. <laughs> uh, sorry, I was going to say, that's one of the reasons why I created the blog. It was actually kind of my way of secretly keeping girls in STEM, which actually stemmed, literally, another avenue of doing lectures for the Adventure Science Center. So they actually brought me in to talk to the fifth through eighth grade girls to keep them in the science fields, science and tech fields. So that was actually kind of interesting. That blog brought me to that world as well. But that Excellent. was really, I was just more interested in just keeping people interested in science and saying, hey, you can like fashion, but you can also like science as well. And you're actually liking science whether you realize it or not. That's mostly where the blog came from. Yeah, that's very cool. So is the blog still up? The blog is still up. <laughs> I can't quite, I was a lot of work went into it, and I just, I can't quite completely disband it. Uh, I do, I have these moments where I know I see things, and I'm just like, man, I really could write an article on that. But um, the, the other things have been so time-consuming for me that I, I rather spend it doing, you know, actually being on set as opposed to sitting and blogging. But I do, I do enjoy doing that. I really do need to bring it back. And what is the URL for that blog? Uh, it's just dnastylix.com, D-N-A-S-T-Y-L-I-X.com. Hopefully you'll get some traffic and some future inspiration to make some more of those. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. I love doing it for sure. The uh, the couple posts that I read, I mean, it, it's been it has been a few years since you've really been active over there, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. I took a big break. Good, because I'm glad that you haven't been active like for the past five years, and then I just missed it all. Um, <laughs> but back then, when I was full time freelance photographer, I would come across them a little more often. And then five and a half years ago, when I went in house and um, Kid number two came along. My available time for doing that sort of thing just diminished and diminished and diminished. So I, I, I personally lost touch of that. But I'm glad to hear that it hasn't happened <laughs> since then. So no, I didn't really you haven't miss missed much. anything. No, you didn't <laughs> miss anything. 
I just started focusing on other avenues. Like, like I said, actually doing the wardrobe styling took up a lot of my time. So it just sort of went by the wayside for a little bit. But it's still there. It's still a passion. So I need to just sit and write some write some more articles. <laughs> yep. And and until that happens, then the the previous work is still out there, and people will find it and leave it out there in the in the world library. <laughs> exactly. Let's take a quick break for a word about an organization that Amber supports. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society exists to find cures and to ensure access to treatments for blood cancer patients, like Taylor Carroll. My name is Taylor Carroll, and I am passionate about LLS. When I was 11, I was diagnosed terminal with a rare form of cancer, ALL leukemia with Philadelphia chromosome, and was given roughly two weeks left to live. My family was thrown into an emotional tunnel, and we were lost. We looked for any form of guidance, of hope. And for us, LLS was that. They helped guide my family to the center of treatment, and they helped fund the research behind my treatment. By the grace of God and research funded by LLS, I beat my illness. I'm 100% cancer-free now, and I am passionate about helping the cause and ending cancer. I travel the country now as a singer and a spokesman for LLS, to raise awareness, funds, and inspiration. Getting to work with LLS has been one of the most incredible blessings of my life, and I can't wait to be a uh, bigger part. Learn more about LLS at LLS.org. So you and I, um, aside from fashion and interest in photography, we share another wild, wild love. Um, mine is sleeping on the floor here, and that would be dogs. <laughs> oh we yeah, quite quite easily one of the best creatures on the earth. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Dogs people unite. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I unfortunately do not have a yard with a fence. You know, with a fence, I'm gone a lot with the medical field. Of course, we have long hours, and sometimes I travel, and so um, I'm single. So I actually uh, I have foregone the whole having a dog in my own life. So I make up for that by going and volunteering for the Humane Association by walking theirs. Awesome. <laughs> and just sharing as many dog memes as I possibly can that helps yep. me out too. <laughs> yep. I'm definitely glad you did that. We got our first dog Sunday from the Nashville Humane Association. So they, they will forever hold a dear place in our heart. And rescue dogs in general. Wow. Clementine, our mm -hmm. second rescue here is... An amazing girl, and she is still out like a light. Usually I can say her name and she'll perk up, but she's curled up into <laughs> a ball. Uh, she's twice the weight Sunday was, but she can curl into a ball the size Sunday was. I've, I've had to figure <laughs> out how she folds off. Yeah, um, she has long legs. <laughs> yes, very. Yeah, and it, it's crazy because she will, it's like there's a hidden joint that she just scrunches them up. <laughs> So what is it about dogs? Oh, gosh. Um, being I could that, talk about dogs course, forever. So. Yeah, I was going to say, being that I, of course, grew up in the country, um, I grew up, in a, I'm an only child. So for me, my playmates were actually my dogs. They were the first dogs I ever had were a pair of beagles that were my dad's hot, like they, I'm sorry, my dad's hunting dogs. And so I had them, and then uh, a couple of, random dumped out mutts ended up on the farm and they ended up taking up residence as well and then of course one of our favorites was uh our dog huckleberry that was also a dumped out little runt 
she was barely weaned when she showed up, mangy, and just had seen better days and starving. But she was, I don't know, she won our hearts on that one. And she ended up staying with us for about 16 years. Uh, I had that dog for a long time. But um, mostly it's just, of course, you've got the psychological nature and the chemistry nature of what happens when you're around animals in general. They're going to, you know, decrease your, you know, uh, blood pressure, they're going to make you feel more relaxed, they're going to calm you down, um, they're stress relievers, they're comfort dogs, you know, of course, that's why they're in the, uh, the, uh, the comforting feel that they can be in, but they, uh, dogs, to me, they just, I don't know, something about them, like, I just, they make me smile, and, like, one of my favorite things is to see one head outside the car window, <laughs> I mean, that, like, it's an immediate smile for me, and I know that's not for everybody, but um, there's this, I've just always loved them. I've always had stuffed animals that were dogs when I was a kid. So for me, they were, they were just to have had, you know, walked a hundred plus dogs at the Humane Association. So it's to see their personality is also is kind of intriguing to me. They're just like people. They sometimes they'll be kind of like cats and they don't want you to bother them or be, you know, just the most loving things you can ever, ever find. But they sort of, that's just it. They're they are very loving. And I love anything that's gentle, has a gentle heart. So dogs are my are my people, I suppose. Yes. Well, there's a reason dogs or cats spelled backwards doesn't spell God. Speaking of, speaking <laughs> of mirror images, if you literally reverse the letters, then you kind of have a clue into the origin of where dogs come from. That's what they are. Yeah. So I want to get a little more... A personal here because you you have mentioned that you're single. I when I first met you, you you were single. Then I remember you getting married, and uh, you and I share a wedding photographer. I don't know if you knew that mm-hmm. or not, but Alan shot my wedding back in almost literally almost 20 years ago. Uh, this coming, I May, actually don't think I knew that. <laughs> this coming May will be 20 years for Megan and me. Yep, um, that's actually how. Yeah, and I, I think your wedding date is actually my birthday. <laughs> May 16? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Well, look at that. Yeah. And then single again, being the intelligent woman that you are, you think, you post, you share, and you've been rather vocal about what it's like being single in today's modern world. And, and And I don't want to say it's funny because I don't want to say it's like, the curious thing about it is I read those and I was like, you know what? I don't have a clue what you're talking about because <laughs> it, I, I literally have been married for almost 20 years. When, when I see something like that, um, and I've got a, a few single and single again, 30 something friends. I, I kind of feel like Tom Hanks when he's reentering the dating scene in Sleepless in Seattle and and that and just the, the the humor he's like I'm so out of it um, and I have no interest in re-entering the dating scene so that's not where I'm going with this but it's like I I read these the struggles that you girls are going through and just the crap you have to deal with and I'm just like really like that's even a reality yeah it's interesting because yeah like you said it's been a while. Uh, it's been a while since you've been in the dating scene. Yeah. It's the same for me. <laughs> um, I was, gosh, um, married for five, with him for seven, and then it's been, you know, a year out, two years out of divorce. And so 
uh, it was just interesting kind of getting back into the dating world because, of course, it's been probably 10 years since I've been in it. And um, it's it's definitely got its interesting parts for sure. Um, things have changed where uh, just common courtesy has changed. Uh, um, how women are, you know, we don't get picked up for dates anymore. We have to meet them somewhere usually. Um, there's no have to, but that's usually the norm, the understood norm. This has changed. Uh, of course, all the dating apps now exist. That wasn't really around too much or wasn't very popular 10 years ago for me. <laughs> so, like, like, everybody now has an option B um, waiting in the wings, it would seem. Uh, it's definitely been interesting. I mean, I really can't even say that I've really set forth and specifically went out to go dating. I don't do that. I don't. I don't really put that restriction on myself. I feel like things should always somewhat happen organically. And so the dates that I have been on uh, or the people that I have dated since um, the divorce finalizing, they were all mutual friends of, uh, well, I'm sorry, friends of my friends, basically. So I was introduced to them through friends. Uh, usually um, that's how I kind of like to do things. I don't really do the dating app scene like a lot of people are trying to do. Um, I think that's to up to everyone's personality, uh, more or less. I was on, I think, Bumble for three days, and I found it to be rather overwhelming. <laughs> um, so I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to stick to the meeting people through friends and see how it goes. Um, usually, we're usually doing things that we enjoy, like going to concerts and that type of thing. Um, so I, I'm very much on finding someone that kind of enjoys the same things I do. Not all of them, of course, but... Um, a few mutual likes to kind of make things more interesting and more easy, as I would suppose. But especially definitely be interesting. So it's when did it change that it was? It is now expected that you don't get picked up for dates. Probably when I like at some point while I was married, I didn't even notice. Um, I never even remember seeing friends talking about it. But it's. It really is now, it's more or less a, from my understanding, at least what little I've been in the dating scene, uh, it's very much you show up at so-and-so bar or so-and-so coffee shop and you meet each other that way. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it became like a safety thing. I don't know where it really started, but it basically, like nobody That was my like, first reaction you. was maybe, yeah, it, I'm not I mean, sure I want you to know where people, my house is. Yet. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I am, I'm kind of wondering if it's a little bit of that, um, because if you are using a dating app, of course, you don't know if the person you're meeting is really who's on the picture, uh, you know, who's in the photo or, you know, who's or who they say they are. So you could, you know, it's an easy way to get trapped into something that you're not aware you're getting pulled into the catfishing thing, for example, apparently that happens a lot. Um, but yeah, it's. I would say it was probably maybe a safety thing that got switched around somewhere. Yeah, that, um, because that like may, again, I can, you're, I can you're wrap my head through, around that. But if I mean, if yeah, because you're maybe you're meeting through the internet, and that way you don't know what they're really, what you're really meeting. So it makes more sense to be a little bit more safe, meet in a more public area. I can see that's where maybe the switch happened. Okay, I I can buy that. But if it's because guys have lost the art of chivalry and being a gentleman and and all that stuff that's where i'm going to get up my feathers whole ruffled but <laughs> um as the father of two daughters now and also with a son who i'm who i'm going to raise what i believe to to be the right way um if 
if dating apps are even around in 40 years when my kids start dating, then <laughs> good Lord. Yeah, I wouldn't want, yeah, I don't want them meeting somebody online and then, oh, yeah, here's my address. Correct. Yeah, that, so that, would, I, that would be my first guess. Yeah. I've never really thought about it until you just brought that up. I'm like, why well, did this switch? <laughs> well, you, you know, you mentioned that and I instinctively was like, you meet what? You, <laughs> you, you, yeah, it was just crazy. I mean, that's how, that's how far out of the game I am. Thank the good Lord. And that's how much times have changed since um, Megan and I started dating in 97. So what's been the biggest thing you have learned transitioning from married life to single again and then dealing with all of the, the single stuff you have to do? If, if, you, were, if you were giving a, a talk at an Adventure Science Center weekend when you had STEM girls there <laughs> and you could talk <laughs> about not only the science but life and like really get into, uh, you know, hear their stories and offer some sage advice. Ooh, what are what are some like, what are some life lessons that you know now that uh, from dating side dating life lessons I suppose uh, gosh I mean, uh, it, probably, it could inc include that but yeah um, again I, I've said it earlier um, but mostly I the, it's the weed out for me where I know the things that I don't want are more important than the things that I do and what I mean by that is. Um, if I don't like smoking, that's going to be kind of like a deciding factor to whether I want to date someone or not. Now, granted, they can always stop smoking, for example. But um, yes, I they found could that always the things, the negative qualities, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I just found like, say, the negative qualities um, matter a lot more to me than finding the more minuscule things. Um, I would say uh, having an interest in music has to be, is one of my key things. Um, and if they don't like live music, I've actually gone on a date before and the guy said that he did not like live music. And I was like, oh my, I'm going to go to concerts all by myself for the rest of my life. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a no, you know, brainer, I guess. How is that guy even it's... human? <laughs> I mean, who, like who, who doesn't like live music for crying out loud? Yeah. Yeah. He's, and he's live in music loud. city. I'm like, I'm like really? earplugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I was a little taken aback by that question, but I'm sorry about that statement. So I was like, I don't know this is going to go very far. You're um, like, wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Um, Check, and please. I guess also is that if, um, because I have dealt with loss in a number of, number of facets, um, from an apartment fire, losing everything, um, from a standpoint of having to start over again, uh, the divorce itself, losing that life, losing a second life, um, for the most part with the apartment fire, having to start over randomly. Uh, a lot of loss, a lot of family members have passed in the last five years. Um, my biggest advice also is just if you're dealing with any kind of loss, whether it's a loss of a job, a loss of a sibling, a dog for that matter, anything, whether it's a loss of a boyfriend or friendship, um, a loss of a dream, I've even had that kind of uh, thing happen. Um, one of the best advice, uh, I have for that is very much understanding the grief spiral where, and that grief in general is going to be, it's not, it's not linear. It literally won't just constantly just be a straight line. It's going to, if you consider grief literally on a spiral, it's going to go away and it's going to come back to you at random intervals. 
And I'd say the most important thing that I learned out of that is that it's really tight. It's a tightly wound spiral in the very beginning. But then as time goes on, that spiral unwinds, but it does come back at random, but it comes back at smaller, I'm sorry, at longer intervals in between times. But to know that it's going to come back around is the most powerful thing because you know that okay that's that moment where I'm gonna remember somebody because a certain song came on the radio oh there's that moment of grief and then you can work your way through it and then you can move on and go about your day so that was my biggest thing to learn was because of so much loss um it it was very crucial for me to understand that there are those moments where grief is gonna hit you out of nowhere Um, that loss of whatever is going to come back around. It's going to hit you on a day when you're tired or it's going to be that song you hear on the radio. And it was very much, um, it was so helpful to know that because when you know it's coming back around, you can brace for it a little bit better than the last time. And it does get better. Um, I know it's, it's one of those little numbing things that sometimes it won't ever go away or it may never go away, but it will get lighter and easier to understand and know that it's going to come back at some point. That's pretty solid. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, 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 makes, that makes very good sense. That's pretty solid. Thank you for sharing that. And super cool proof on why you are one of my people. <laughs> well, you're one of my people as well. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. I'm, you know, it's, I'm sitting here thinking, trying to put the date on that, uh, that very first shoot we did. Um, and, and I mean, it had to have been 10, 12 years ago and, um, you know, life is, life is layered. People are layered and even over that, we'll just call it 10 year period that, I mean, there would, there, I learned something about you today that I didn't, I didn't know. Um, and I think that speaks to how important it is to collect people along the way, not as, objects but as treasures valuable treasures and continue learning more about them and all that cool stuff um believe it or not time we must have had fun because time flew by (laughs) exactly Um, but thank you so much for being you and being super cool and smart and giving and creative and and all of that Oh, thank you. Super awesome stuff. (laughs) Um, Keep doing what you're doing with the dogs. And uh, I I applaud you. I I don't know how you do it as much as you love dogs. But I'm glad that you recognize that you're not in a situation that would be a great living environment for one dog. Uh, But that just means that that all of the dogs out there are yours, even if it's just for a, hey, I'm going to take them for a walk. One day you you will get a place where you can have one curled up on the floor here gone oh, I'm sure. to the I'm, world you can just house sit <laughs> <laughs> that too till I get to that point <laughs> yes I'll dog sit yes well thank you very much it's good catching up with you yeah you too yeah this was super fun I appreciate the conversation there you have it if you enjoyed this subscribe and share with your friends go to Apple Podcasts Google Play Stitcher SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts Search for Collected Clan and subscribe. See more in the show notes for this episode at collectedclan.com slash amberwilliams. 
And a big shout out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodesiac Lounge Volume 1. Check out more of their music at WorldwideGrooveCorporation.com. Now go be you.